So this last Wednesday, I went to an LGBTQ variety show to kick off Pride Weekend. Near the end of the night, far past my usual bedtime, after a dazzling array of queer poets, burlesque artists, and punk bands performed, a local illustrator and author of the new book, A Quick and Easy Guide to They, Them Pronouns, Archie Bongiovanni, did a live reading of one of their comics. In the comic strip, which originally appeared on the queer website Autostraddle, two characters are talking at a bar when one of them gets a match on Tinder, which is a popular dating app. The person who got the match, Taylor, a cerebral and shy graduate student, begins to panic, expressing that they don't know what to say in response to this message. Andy, who seems to be much more confident of the two, begins to walk them through it. But after Andy offers to send a message to Taylor's match for them, Taylor spirals, and the comic presents a full panel that is just Taylor's anxiety-stricken face and a giant text bubble. How does one translate their personality into the digital world, Taylor wails, before adding, isn't social media just a game? The word game is capitalized and underlined for ex extreme emphasis. Taylor's sentiment is one that many of us can surely identify with. In an age of hyper-filtered selfies, tweets designed to go viral, and catfishes, many of us struggle with Taylor's question of how to show up authentically online. And we share Taylor's fear that social media is just one big game, where everyone is pretending to be something that they're not, or at least trying to make their lives seem more interesting than everyone else's, almost as if they're trying to score points and one-up one another. Surveying social media, it can look like everyone is lying about their lives, or at least not telling the full truth. This message, that everyone is lying online or exaggerating, is driven home time and again in reports on studies about social media use, uh, think pieces that argue that social media is making us miserable and alienated, and popular shows like Black Mirror which paints a bleak portrait of a world where social media and the internet are a dark and twisted game that make us less connected instead of more. As a result, we often castigate social media as fake, as harmful, as not real. But while this is certainly true, some of these fears and anxieties about social media in some respects, I also think that this view of social media may be a bit cynical. It is true that social media, and games for that matter, are both spaces where people can pretend to be something that they're not. But I've also found myself wondering if perhaps games and social media can teach us a few things about what it means to be real, if we're willing to look a little more closely at how we use them. So on a sunny afternoon in late April, I went to visit the St. Paul offices for Atlas Games, uh, maker of board, card, and role-playing games, or RPGs. I was there to meet with three of their game makers. After some casual conversation, I asked them the question that I was there to explore. What exactly draws them to gameplay, and what do they get out of engaging in it? I hope that by learning more about the nature of gameplay, I might better understand what, if any, parallels it has with the ways that we sometimes use social media. The first of the game makers to respond said that for him, playing games is about taking a break from being in charge. 
He said he has a lot of responsibilities in his day-to-day -day life, and games give him a space to play. That definitely resonated with me. My family loves board and card games, and I always have a great time when we play them. But these days, I rarely go out of my way to play games on my own. With the exception of board games at the holidays with family, playing dominoes or hopscotch with my nephews and niece when I visit them, or the occasional escape room game where participants attempt to solve riddles to get out of a room in an allotted amount of time, I can't say that I've played many games in the last few years outside of those things. Except that, to me and I think many others, social media can often function like a kind of game. In some ways, the parallels are obvious. We often treat our online personas like a game where getting likes or favorites can feel like scoring points, where getting verified or gaining followers can feel like leveling up. But I think that there is more to the parallel than that. But before I get into that, I think it's important to be clear about what a game is exactly. In the book, A Theory of Fun for Game Design, author Rafe Coaster cites academics who define games as voluntary, rule-based, free activities outside ordinary life, where different outcomes are assigned different values, the player exerts effort in order to influence the outcome, the player feels attached to the outcome, and the consequences of the activity are optional and negotiable. Coaster also offers definitions from game makers who define a game as consisting of a series of meaningful choices, one or more casually linked series of challenges in a simulated environment, and a system in which players engage in artificial conflict defined by rules that results in a quantifiable outcome. Now there are many senses, I think, in which these definitions could be used to describe social media too. For many of us, social media can feel like a simulated environment. It can feel like a free activity set apart from our ordinary life, where different outcomes, like getting engagement or increasing your reach, have different values. As in games, there are rules to social media, and we feel attached to what happens when we use it. And yet, on social media, as in games, while we are still attached to the outcome of what happens online, the consequences can sometimes feel optional or negotiable. As in a game, there is often a sense that the stakes are lower online, that what happens online is somehow less real and has less of an impact on the rest of our lives than other activities do. That if a conflict happens online, for example, it is somehow artificial, somehow less real than an argument that occurs in person. In light of these definitions of games, it is easy to see why the game makers at Atlas said that games are often a place where we go to unwind if we have a lot of responsibility in our lives. They feel like a place where we can play out high stakes emotions in a lower stakes environment. Whether it's an escape room where you're trying to get out of a room with a limited amount of time, all the while knowing you're not in any real danger, or a game of Dungeons and Dragons where you're battling imaginary monsters instead of the real difficulties that we all encounter in life. Gameplay can be an opportunity to conquer some challenges with fewer far-reaching consequences. And I think our online behaviors can function similarly. A couple of years ago, the longest relationship that I had ever been in ended, and as I navigated that and uh, sort of disentangled my life from that relationship, it was a great struggle. But I also struggled with how much to share about what I was going through on social media, which is how I ultimately became interested in this topic. 
But as I began to look back on my social media use in the year leading up to my breakup, it also became clear to me how much I had been using it as a space to meet some essential needs. There was a lot going on at work in the year leading up to my breakup. I was on the job seven days a week most of the time, working from morning until late into the night. But I had a few spaces where I would frequently go online to anonymously post and read jokes and to engage in conversations separate from the social media accounts associated with my name and my writing and my activism. Though I wasn't thinking of it in this way at the time, posting anonymously online, uh, was, it became a way of creating space for goofing off at a time when I felt overwhelmed by responsibility. It may have seemed small or silly, but there were days when posting playfully online was the one thing that kept me from being overcome by stress. There was a sense that I, I needed it. And this is because play is actually a necessity. It's not something extra, some luxury to indulge in if we can spare the time, but rather it fulfills important needs. Research has shown that play contributes to both social and physical well-being, and it also helps with stress reduction. But it goes further than that. According to Boston College's Peter Gray, humans are actually evolutionarily wired for play. While the development of play may have been first and foremost about teaching skills to children among early humans, its extension into adulthood may have helped to build cooperation and sharing among hunter-gatherers beyond the level that would naturally exist in dominant-seeking spe species. But while it helped build cooperation among early humans, play continues to be vital in our modern age because it's adaptive. At work, play has been found to speed up learning, enhance productivity, and increase job satisfaction. And at home, playing together, like going to a movie or a concert, can enhance bonding and communication, says the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign's Lynn Barnett, who actually worked on a study that found that adults that play more report less stress and maintain better coping mechanisms. In the words of Barnett, highly playful adults feel the same stressors as anyone else but they appear to experience and react to them differently, allowing stressors to roll off more easily than those who are less playful. But when we don't actively seek out opportunities for play, we are often less equipped to deal with those stressors. And because we need play, we sometimes go about meeting that need in less intentional ways, as I did online in the year leading up to my breakup, and as I think many of us do on social media. Since social media is a space where we increasingly spend more and more of our lives, it's easy to mindlessly use it as a vehicle for satiating our need for play. But if we're going to use it for play, it would probably benefit us to do so more intentionally. So I grew up before the emergence of social media in a household where play was highly encouraged. While my siblings and I didn't have a ton of toys or things, we did have a beloved imagination game that we played almost daily. It was not terribly complicated. It was called Zoo. My sister's character, a monkey named Banana Bug, ran the show. Her accomplice was my younger brother, a mountain lion that loved to lounge named Mahi Mahi. And my youngest brother was added to the game as a wild squirrel who lived in the zoo outside of a cage. His name was Blar Blar, but uh, he took wild, which we told him he was just a wild squirrel not living in an exhibit. He took wild to mean rabid, uh, which meant that he bit uh, each of us whenever he got the chance. 
and me, um, I was the zookeeper. I resolved the conflicts between the different animals. I addressed the issues and cleaned up the messes. I was the conflict solver who kept order. The animal characters all had idiosyncrasies and unique characteristics and voices and personalities, but the zookeeper was just that, just a zookeeper. It's not that it wasn't a glamorous role, though it wasn't, um, or that it didn't have a creative name like Banana Bug or Blar Blar, though it didn't. Um, it's that it wasn't even really a character at all. The zookeeper didn't have a personality, he didn't have a name, he was just a title, just a role. Unlike the animal characters, playing zookeeper wasn't a chance to step outside of myself and be something new and different. Unlike my siblings, I was still playing a human. Their characters were about creating fun chaos. Mine was about keeping order. When I was the zookeeper, I was still me, but I was a more responsible, more together version of me. So often, this has been true of my social media behavior as an adult, too. For years, I have been incredibly active on Twitter, but uh, most of that time, I've shared a very edited version of myself online, afraid to broadcast anything too personal or too intense. Eventually, my Twitter started to feel so sanitized that it was almost like I was just a title, just my professional roles that I didn't have a personality. But really, this impulse to edit has been present in my social media use from the beginning. When I first joined MySpace back in high school, I remember carefully selecting photos that would make me look more mature and capable than I felt. Under my favorite music session, section, I chose to list bands and singers that I genuinely enjoyed, but that I also thought would make me seem like a person with good taste, uh, while leaving out the artists that I was kind of embarrassed to love. In the years since, I've often tried to put on a good face on social media, to seem more mature, more professional, more in control than I actually felt. For me, social media has often been a vehicle for trying to control how other people see me, something that the game makers at Atlas identified as one thing that sometimes draws people to games, like, for example, the, perhaps those who want to control the narrative of the game, like uh, Dungeon Master in Dungeons and Dragons. But I wasn't always trying to exert control when playing games as a kid. Sometimes my youthful gameplay was actually about letting go of control and having a space for experimentation. Though the world around me often felt defined by constraints, I grew up in a household that encouraged us to break some of society's rules in small ways, but ways that were meaningful. For example, my mother uh, stocked a basket full of dress-up clothing and my siblings and I utilized its contents often for imagination games. Frequently, this resulted in us wearing items of clothing that were intended for people of a gender other than the one we were assigned at birth. Our family photo albums are full of pictures of my brothers and I wearing dresses and skirts from that basket. Though I am cisgender, meaning I identify with the gender that I was assigned at birth, I often felt restricted by the expectations of my assigned gender as a child and that any deviation from gendered norms could have grave consequences. But gameplay was a place to start breaking some of those things down, to experiment, to try things out, to explore aspects of my personality that felt unsafe or risky to express elsewhere. And the same has been often felt true of my social media use. It's been a place to experiment. 
And in this sense, games and social media are more than a vehicle to just control how others see us. They also enable us to experiment with identity and to express ourselves in radical and often vital ways. A couple years ago, I met a woman named Marissa on Twitter, and we started messaging regularly. After she mentioned that she was an avid online gamer, I asked if she would be willing to tell me a little bit more about why games are so important to her. From the very first moment that she held a controller in her hands, Marissa told me she loved video games. It was the 1980s, and video games had suddenly become much more affordable and accessible to a broader range of Americans. At the beginning of their heyday, it truly felt like they were for everyone, she told me. It wasn't until the 1990s that a broader number of people started to think of them as, quote, more of a guy thing. And it was in this specific window in the 1980s that Marissa, a trans woman who was assigned male at birth, found herself entranced by video games and their blocky 8-bit graphics, in large part because they were one of the few things that seemed acceptable for both boys and girls to be interested in. Little did she know that her love of gaming would actually lead her to the space where she would first come out. In the mid-90s, when Marissa was around 15 years old, she started participating in an online chat room for people interested in ZZT, a computer game with simple graphics where you could build your own games and share them with others. It was there, in those online chat rooms, where, she where everyone was just a display name that she first came out as trans. It was actually quite simple. She just changed her display name in the chat room to something more feminine and said that if anyone had any questions, they could ask her. But no one did. The nonchalance of their acceptance, their unquestioning willingness to simply start calling her by a different name, was almost shocking to her. And in fact, as it turned out, there were many other trans people in the chat too. Online spaces, especially those that orient around creative endeavors, whether it's a chat room for users of a cooperative game like ZZT or the pop music fan forums of today, online spaces like those often allow for a degree of anonymity that appeals to queer people and trans people in need of a safe space to express their identities. There is something about both the anonymity and the creativity of the, these kinds of online spaces that often make them feel particularly safe for people looking to work through identity questions. As someone who grew up in the 90s and early 2000s, I too found that internet chat rooms were the first space that I felt I could safely come out as queer. Coming out online felt significantly more low stakes. In a text-only chat room, no one knew me as anything other than an Aaliyah fan. <laughs> so unlike at school, where I later told a few friends that I was queer and those friends went on to tell others without my consent, resulting in a ridiculously dramatic scene where I literally chased two of them outside of another friend's birthday party, um, I knew that it wouldn't spread to other people in my life when I shared it online. In a chat room, I had greater control over my own story and I didn't have to worry about being rejected as I did with family and friends. If someone was cruel or hostile about my identity, I could just close the chat window. Like me, Marissa also found radical and much needed acceptance on the internet. But while her journey of coming out in a chat room was surprisingly simple, her journey to coming out offline was anything but. Marissa initially came out as trans to her family and many of her friends in the late 90s during her senior year of high school. Some of her friends were supportive, but her parents refused to accept her identity. 
So after graduating from high school, Marissa moved to San Diego, California to live with her sister, where she could put on a dress and go to the gay bar for ladies' night on Saturdays without her parents' judgment. After her sister graduated from school and moved back in with their parents, though, Marissa was laid off from her job and had to move back in with her parents, too. Stuck living in the home of parents who didn't understand her, with no health insurance and only a part-time job, Marissa felt like she had no choice but to go back in the closet. She thought she would just do her best to make it work. But 10 years went by almost, and after almost 10 years in the closet, it definitely was not working. Naturally creative, Marissa loved to express herself. It was a huge part of what appealed to her about games. But the closet made that profoundly difficult, if not impossible. And with each passing year, she felt more and more hopeless. But during her decade living at home, she did have one outlet for self-expression, which was online role-playing games. She got very involved in a game called EverQuest, which is a massively multiplayer fantasy game where users create custom characters that work in teams to explore dungeons and slay beasts. And even though she generally played with a group of coworkers to whom she wasn't out, she was able to play as a female character. Because she was gaming with people who saw her as a man outside of the game, it felt subversive to pick a female character, she told me. EverQuest is what's commonly referred to as a persistent game, meaning that you stick with the character that you create over a long period of time. Unlike, say, picking Princess Peach for a single round of Mario Kart. And you resume play as the character you've chosen every time that you return to the game. And because of this, there was an assumption among many EverQuest players that men would not play a female character. But this choice represented more than just subversion to her. It was also a way to express aspects of herself that she couldn't in just about any other area of her life. It was a way to feel closer to being seen for who she really was than she could at work or at home, a way to be seen as a woman and have people engage with her as one. Fortunately, three years ago, after Marissa had saved up enough money from her full-time job at a school district to move out of her parents' home, she was finally able to come out again and to begin to transition. And soon after, she began dating a woman that she had met through online gaming. Today, Marissa and her girlfriend run an online game community together, an explicitly queer and trans-inclusive space for people to play together because they want to create the kinds of welcoming online gaming spaces that Marissa benefited from when she was younger. But the benefits of gaming have extended far beyond Marissa's youth. A few years ago, when she was trying to figure out how she wanted to present herself as a woman, gameplay was hugely helpful. She knew that she was a woman, but she didn't know fully what that meant to her. Marissa didn't have the same experimental teenage or young adult years to try out different styles of dress and figure out what works best, a period of self-definition and exploration that cisgender people like me so often take for granted. But gameplay gave her an opportunity to explore different things and discover what she liked. It was more than just trying on different styles of clothing. It was a way of experimenting with an overall aesthetic and with different ways of being in the world. And even today, while she is able to express herself more fully in other areas of her life than she ever could before, Marissa still finds games to be helpful spaces for learning new things about herself and bringing different elements of her personality to the forefront. And she says that the same is true of her social media use. Whether we're regular video game users or not, 
I think gameplay and social media in a variety of settings function in this way for many of us. For example, when I was in high school, a good friend from church hosted a murder mystery dinner party for their birthday. I was assigned the role of an undertaker, and we agreed that I should dress in a manner consistent with what we thought goth meant. As I was trying to figure out what to wear, all black, um, I asked her if she would paint my nails black too. I was already out as queer at this point, but I still had a great deal of internalized homophobia, and I was constantly trying to prove to the world at that point in my life that being queer didn't mean that I was different from everyone else. But here, in this game, was an opportunity to experiment, to try something that I was curious about, something that felt subversive, under the guise of play, and to see how it felt. And sure enough, I liked it, and I've painted my nails many times since. This may be what draws many queer and trans people like Marissa to gameplay and to social media. And surveying the number of queer people who love video games or role-playing or tabletop games like Dungeons and Dragons and who are active on social media, I think that she is far from alone in her interest. Games and the ways in which we navigate our identities online let us experiment. We're often not as bound by the conventions and norms of our hetero and cisnormative society online or in games. At their best, games and social media aren't escapism as much as they are a vehicle for self-expression. They're creative, cooperative, world-building exercises where we can define ourselves and the world around us on our own terms. And with enough practice, these invented versions of ourselves can become more real than in any game. There's one last game that I often played with my siblings as a kid that I keep coming back to as an adult. It was one of our favorites, an incredibly simple game someone taught us called Sculpture Maker. Anyone familiar with it? A couple people. So the details of the game are largely explained by its title. Um, the person who played the role of sculpture maker, why this role wasn't called sculptor um, instead is a mystery. Um, but the person who played the role of sculpture maker would grab a player's wrists, stand across from them, and then spin them in a circle, letting each player go at an unex unexpected moment. This would send the other player flying so that they landed misshapen, a tangle of limbs and twisted torso. Once you had been tossed like a sculptor, I'm sorry, sculpture maker, like a sculpture maker tosses clay, uh, you were to stay frozen in that spot and positioned, locked in place, however you landed. Then, once every player was set as a sculpture, the sculpture maker would walk around and tell each one what they were a sculpture of. You are a willow tree, my sister, the sculpture maker, would say glancing over at one of two big willow trees in our backyard, before pausing and inspecting me further as I tried desperately not to waver in my complicated and uncomfortable pose. No, actually, you're a piece of goose poop. And that was basically it. It wasn't a complicated game, but it became a go-to, in large part because you didn't need anything but your imagination and a few willing accomplices to play. We loved it, devoting many summer afternoon hours to making sculptures of one another in the wet, sweet-smelling grass of our backyard. While the sculpture maker was usually the one in control of the game, that role actually rarely appealed to me. Most of the time, I wanted to be flung across the turf, 
to tumble and roll into a warped shape. I wanted to be thrown, to not know how I would land, and to let someone else tell me what they saw me as, what they saw in me. During a childhood where I was fixated on how other people saw me, on trying to make sure that they couldn't see through to the real queer me, it was refreshing to let my guard down a little, to have an opportunity to let someone else define me in the safe context of a simple game. Still, I couldn't always help myself. Sometimes, perhaps more often than I even realized, I would adjust how I landed just a little to make a better, more interesting shape, like throwing an arm in the air at a ridiculous angle and acting like that was just how I landed. <laughs> and I wasn't the only one stepping on the scale. Half of the fun of the game was giving the sculpture maker something wild, challenging, and engaging to work with. There was nothing worse than having the sculpture maker walk over to you and offer a bored sigh. We all wanted to be interesting to look at. On social media too, I can't always stop myself from putting some extra weight on the scale. It is so tempting to want to present a more interesting shape to the world, to find yourself editing and adjusting how you share your life online. Sure enough, sometimes the internet makes it easier to not be accountable to yourself and others. As in games, there can be an ease with which our online selves can be less accountable, where we can exaggerate the truth or even hit reboot and rebrand ourselves if the current iteration isn't working. We've probably all done it. Uh, for example, in high school, I was active on numerous blogging forums, moving from one to the next whenever I felt I needed a fresh start, and usually deleting my old one when I had abandoned it. But this was something that I had done long before I was active online. Whether it was starting over with a new group of friends, choosing a new nickname or style of clothing, or even moving to a new city as an adult, I have often sought out or relished opportunities to have a clean slate and introduce myself to a new group of people as a better, more together version of myself. In this light, our desire to play make-believe and to reconstruct ourselves isn't some new behavioral phenomenon that's brought on by the social media age, but rather an expression of deeply human instincts that we've had for our whole lives since childhood. It may just be that social media makes it both easier to do and easier to recognize. But that doesn't mean that social media is this totally fake world where everyone is adjusting their arms when they land to create a more interesting shape, either. Social media, as in games, can be a space where we are able to express things about ourselves that perhaps we can't anywhere else, where we can experiment with our identities, trying on different personalities, or emphasizing different characteristics. And it's a place where we can play, where we can be creative and wild and weird, but it's important to be careful about how we use it, especially given how easy it is to avoid accountability or even deceive yourself and others, knowingly or otherwise. Through games and social media, we can take on challenges or experiment with aspects of our identities before bringing those practices into other areas of our lives. Online, it can feel a bit easier to experiment, to make mistakes, and to be messy. And even if we're intentional about it, to start recognizing when and how we are trying to make ourselves more, look more interesting. And because social media often enables us to engage in those practices, perhaps it can also teach us things about how to create more space for them offline too. Thank you very much. <laughs>